In October of 1935, a powerful and hot-tempered gangster known as Arthur the Dutchman Schultz called a meeting in New York City. Joining him were members of the city's five mafia families. He hoped that this group, known as the Commission, would help him settle a score. Dutch told them that an overzealous federal prosecutor named Thomas Dewey had put a target on his back, and time was running out. He'd called in every political favor he had, but no one was able to squash the investigation. Now, there was only one way out. Assassinate Dewey. The hardened criminals had already surveilled the prosecutor and lined up their best killer for the job. This man would gun down Dewey in broad daylight using a silenced pistol. Then, the culprit would disappear before anyone knew what had happened. It was a sound plan, but the commission worried about the potential blowback. Dewey's murder could trigger a government crackdown on their own illegal businesses nationwide. After a heated debate, they settled on their answer. Dewey would live. This enraged Dutch. He knew that the self-righteous lawyer was out for blood, and it was either going to be his head or Dewey's on the pavement. Overwhelmed with fear, he told them he was going ahead with the hit anyway. A few days later, a black sedan pulled in front of the Palace Chop House restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, where Dutch was inside. Two men got out of the car while the third kept the engine running. Within seconds, the leader strolled into the bar and drew a pistol. 30 seconds later, Dutch and all of his bodyguards were dead. The message was clear. Dewey was off limits, and the mafia never repeats itself. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Mafia, a violent criminal organization which has exerted its influence on every branch of the U.S. government. So this time we'll trace the roots of the American Mafia back to its origins in Sicily. We'll also see how it metastasized into one of the most dangerous groups in America— until it was finally brought down by the FBI, at least as far as we know. Next time, we'll examine a few of the many conspiracy theories involving the mob. For example, we'll explore whether they helped the Allies win World War II, or if they teamed up with the CIA to kill Cuban revolutionary Fidel Castro. We'll also investigate the chilling theory that the Mafia successfully got one of their own elected President of the United States. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. 
But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When people talk about the mafia, they're often referring to a range of organized crime— However, the word mafia originally had nothing to do with criminal violence. It came from the island of Sicily. And until the 19th century there, to be a mafioso meant to live according to a strict code of honor. Sicilians developed this code over the course of centuries, while various ruling powers captured and traded the region like a chess piece. They developed a fiercely independent streak, and a deep mistrust of government authority. Loyalty to family was above all else. When someone attacked a member of your house, the only way to repay the offense was with violence. And as clans grew bigger, their methods became more sophisticated. However, our current understanding of a mafioso is fairly new and was born out of the chaos of the 1860s. The foreign-ruled kingdom of Sicily had been in political turmoil for decades. When a revolutionary general wanted to drive out the occupiers, farmers took up arms and joined the cause. After the war was over, many of these freedom fighters became bandits or hired themselves out to powerful families as private armies. And it was in this fertile soil that the real mafia first emerged. According to Selwyn Robb, author of Five Families, The Rise, Decline, and Resurgence of America's Most Powerful Mafia Empires, 
The term mafia is likely rooted in a Sicilian Arabic slang expression, meaning to act as a protector against the arrogance of the powerful. This supposedly protective enterprise flourished in the warm, prosperous lemon groves near Palermo and quickly spread throughout the whole island. Land barons joined forces with brutal gangs, smugglers, and politicians to take control of the levers of power and prey on the common folk. One account from the 1870s shows that the Mafia already had its hooks deep in the Sicilian justice system just 10 years after the war. Dr. Galati, a local surgeon, was tasked with managing a family inheritance that included a successful citrus farm. At first, it was a dream come true. However, he soon discovered the grove had a major problem. Its warden, a swaggering young man named Benedetto Carollo, was skimming up to a quarter of the profits. Dr. Galati realized that if he allowed Carollo to stay, the farm would go bankrupt. He'd have nothing to leave his children. So he did what any good businessman would do. He fired Carollo and hired a replacement. The consequences were deadly. On July 2nd, 1874, several attackers ambushed the new warden while he was walking along the lemon groves and shot him. Naturally, Galati suspected Carollo, but when he told the police what had happened, they did nothing. Not to be deterred, Galati hired another replacement, only to start receiving threatening letters in the mail. The letters referred to Carollo as a man of honor. Dr. Galati was infuriated and clearly didn't get what they meant. There was nothing honorable about Carollo. He was a thief and a murderer. Galati brought all the letters to the police and demanded they arrest Carollo. The officers said they would. When nothing had changed three weeks later, Galati realized the police had likely been paid off. He complained to a high-ranking investigating magistrate who removed the officer in question. He was finally being heard. Yet the letters kept coming. They insisted he hire another man of honor as a replacement. Whomever he hired would skim his earnings on behalf of the local mafia capo, or boss, named Don Antonino Gimona. If he said no, he'd meet the same fate as his last warden. Galati's refusal to bend to this agreement came with familiar consequences. Six months after his second warden was killed, the third one was shot three times by Carollo and his associates. However, this young man survived, and he was able to identify Carollo, which meant the police had to make an arrest. However, Galati was far from seeing justice. A mafia spy in the magistrate's office leaked the doctor's statements to Don Antonino. And as soon as the wounded warden was able to walk on his own, he was invited to dinner with the capo. Afterwards, he recanted his testimony, and Carollo was set free. By now, Galati knew that the local police wouldn't save him, so he fled with his family to Naples. There, he wrote to the Minister of the Interior in Rome, begging for the police to investigate. He claimed that the Sicilian cops were in the pockets of various mafia families. 
He soon learned, though, that the conspiracy was much bigger than just dirty cops, and the doctor was hit with lawsuits from powerful lawyers. Plus, several Sicilian politicians and a priest signed statements of support for Don Antonino. The legal system, the government, and the church were all in on it. According to our research, Dr. Galati never returned to Sicily, and it's likely he'd have been killed if he did. The mafia corrupted the entire system to exploit ordinary citizens for profit, because at the end of the day, it was more than just business. The mafia was a way of life. Those invited swore an oath of secrecy called the Omerta. Breaking it would almost certainly guarantee a death sentence. Once you were in, you were a made man, a bona fide mafioso. The only way out was in a casket. Because Omerta was sacred, it was over a century before this ritual became public. It was only in 1984 that a self-serving mafioso betrayed its secrets and revealed what it was like to join the inner circle. During his initiation, the prospective mafioso held a burning picture of the Virgin Mary with the angel Gabriel and swore an oath of loyalty to the organization. With great solemnity, he said, quote, If I betray my friends and our family, I and my soul will burn in hell like this saint. Clearly, obedience without question was a requirement. This was just as true in 1984 as it was in 1894. If your capo said jump, you asked how high. If he said kill, you grabbed your revolver. And killing was always part of the arrangement. With few exceptions, every made man had to prove himself by executing someone at the behest of his capo. Loyalty to this elite club was expected to surpass any other ties. Men of honor even killed their own family members if their capo requested it. Some derived a sense of pride from it. Furthermore, each mafioso had to obey very strict rules. Everything he did was carefully scrutinized and controlled, including who he was allowed to marry. Within his circle, lying was forbidden, and sleeping with the wife of another mafioso likely meant death. However, once a man was made, he was untouchable. If he was arrested, the organization would bribe or threaten witnesses, cops, and judges to get him off scot-free. It was pure, unadulterated power. As we've learned, the Mafia operated according to its own set of rules and principles. It ceased to be a criminal organization within a state it was the state, complete with its own justice system and mechanisms for resolving conflict. When one of its own broke the rules by killing a civilian without permission, a mafia council could sentence him to death. Murders were planned like boardroom meetings, and territorial disputes were settled over lunch. Furthermore, civilians needed the mafia because the real government was in its pocket. Bribes and political favors greased the wheels at every turn. If you were a cop and you wanted a promotion, or a city councilman looking for a committee appointment, your first stop would be the local capo. 
Each year, the organization's tentacles stretched further and further into society, affecting the everyday lives of ordinary citizens. The Mafia was a complicated benefactor, building orphanages and handing out scholarships, sometimes with money stolen from the very people they helped. And the Mafia's interference in elections dates back to 1874. Don Antonino supposedly controlled nearly all of Sicily's delegates in Parliament, which gave them a seat at the table in the national affairs of Italy. Around the turn of the century, though, hard times struck Sicily. Its wealth and prosperity dried up in the face of natural disasters and an economic collapse. Shortly after, violent protests erupted. The government declared martial law first in Sicily and then in Milan. As Italy staggered towards catastrophe, its citizens packed up their homes and went in search of greener pastures. Many of them landed in the New World. Between 1901 and 1913, about 800,000 Sicilians emigrated to the United States, nearly one-fifth of Sicily's population. The vast majority were ordinary people who were tired of the corruption. They wanted access to basic opportunities, like jobs, homes, and a place to raise their families in peace, free from persecution. However, a few of them looked at New York's overcrowded Italian tenements and saw a population waiting to be exploited. They dreamed of riches, a criminal empire that stretched the continent. The mafia had landed in America, and the good times were going to roll. Coming up, the rise of the American mafia. Put yourself in the shoes of a real-life detective. Imagine examining the crime scene, gathering evidence and interviewing witnesses, feeling the pressure mount as you race against time to catch a criminal. Each week on Scotland Yard Confidential, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history, following in their footsteps as they hunt down suspects and solve seemingly impossible cases, like the scandalous murder of singer Cora Crippen in 1910, whose body was found in her cellar shortly after her husband skipped town, or the daring Hatton Garden heist of 2015, when a gang of elderly thieves made off with a haul worth millions, and the cryptic notes found at a murder scene during the First World War. Was it a clue or a red herring designed to throw investigators off? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast made in partnership with Noiser, airing episodes weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen to Scotland Yard Confidential for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. 
Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. And now, back to the story. By the dawn of the 20th century, the Mafia was firmly in charge of Sicily. While this was good news for anyone associated with the group, for everyone else, it meant widespread poverty and hunger. Workers had nowhere to turn when their Mafia-connected employers stole their wages. That corruption, plus the socioeconomic slump of the island, drove nearly a million people to emigrate. Many Sicilians ended up in New York City, where they hoped the American dream awaited. What they found was anything but. New Yorkers looked down on them with suspicion and scorn. Most Italian immigrants settled in Lower Manhattan, near Elizabeth Street. There they lived in dark, squalid tenements. One historian claimed that each toilet was shared between 50 or 60 people. Finding employment was difficult, too, which left immigrants to take on menial and low-paying jobs. However, for those with mafia connections, it was a different story. Adapting to the Big Apple turned out to be pretty easy. New York was a huge importer of Sicilian foods like citrus, wine, cheese, and olive oil. The mafiosi leveraged their control over these industries back home to create new monopolies in America. For instance, some of the first American mafiosi started out selling groceries of all things because they had exclusive access to Italian products. They could set prices as high as they wanted and extort other businesses into stocking their products. From there, they branched out into other markets like construction and illegal businesses like gambling, protection rackets, and counterfeiting. They met little resistance from the police. To the Mafia's delight, New York cops could be just as corrupt as Sicilian ones. However, the American Mafia was still relatively small. Even within the tight-knit Italian community, the Sicilian thugs were simply one power amongst several. Their reach rarely extended beyond their respective zip codes. But all that changed in 1919, when the states ratified the 18th Amendment. Production and sale of alcohol were banned, ushering in the era known as Prohibition. While lawmakers wanted to create a sober and moral America, what actually happened was quite the opposite. The government effectively handed the entire business of booze over to criminals. Even though it was now a crime, everyone, from the President of the United States to the lowliest dock workers, drank. Supplying the boozy masses became the bread and butter of organized crime, Italian and otherwise. With money rolling in, it was a criminal's paradise. Bootleggers and beer barons operated openly and accrued almost mythological status in the newspapers. One mafioso named Salvatore Lucania became an underworld legend, although he's better known as Lucky Luciano, the boss of all bosses. Lucky came to New York from Sicily in 1906 at the age of nine and quickly fell in with a rough crowd. When he was 18, he was arrested for selling drugs and spent six months behind bars. Around that time, 
the New York Sicilian Mafia began arranging itself into five major organizations, or families, and the head of one was a man who called himself Joe the Boss. Within a couple years of Lucky's release, he had signed up with Joe's crew and started bootlegging liquor. He quickly worked his way up the chain of command. The profits were enormous. Lucky later confessed that he earned $12 million in 1925 purely by making and selling alcohol. Adjusting for inflation, that's almost $200 million in 2022. Lucky was aided by two up-and-coming Jewish gangsters named Meyer Lansky and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. And for Lucky, it didn't matter that his partners weren't Italian. They were smart, ruthless, and always got the job done. Lansky and Bugsy also became Lucky's link with the Jewish mafia, which was very powerful at the time. They helped Lucky expand his empire and become the number two man in Joe the Boss's family. But Lucky wasn't interested in playing second fiddle to anyone. In 1930, Joe started extorting another mafia boss named Salvatore Maranzano. It sparked a war between the two families and created an opening for Lucky to move up the chain. After 18 months of murders and mayhem, Lucky made his play. On April 15, 1931, he invited Joe the boss to a lavish meal on Brooklyn's Coney Island. Before dessert, he excused himself to use the bathroom. Or at least that's what he told Joe. Joe's bodyguards made themselves scarce. With that, four hitmen entered the restaurant and started shooting. With Joe the boss dead, Lucky became the new head of Joe's clan. He immediately brokered a peace and turned his attention back to business. Salvatore Maranzano wasn't impressed, though. He underestimated his new equal. He ordered Lucky and the other bosses around like servants and tried to rule as a dictator. Lucky wouldn't have it. Five months later, he sent a group of hitmen disguised as IRS agents to kill Maranzano. Witnesses heard sounds of a struggle, followed by gunshots. With Maranzano dead, Lucky took over the entire New York City mafia. A few months later, he called a meeting in Chicago for all the other bosses in America. Collectively, this group became known as the Commission. There, Lucky laid down the ground rules for a new American mafia. The goal was simple, make money and avoid bloodshed. The country would be divided up into territories, each represented by a single boss. The Sicilian Oath of Secrecy, called Omerta, was reestablished as the number one rule for anyone looking to join. The whole enterprise worked like a corporation, with Lucky serving as the unofficial CEO over a board of directors. Territorial disputes, interfamily conflicts, and high-profile murders had to be cleared by the commission, which met every five years at a new location. Ironically, Lucky's first name for the crime syndicate was the Committee for Peace. 
The meeting ended, as such meetings sometimes did, with a bacchanalia of food and sex workers at the Blackstone Hotel. In a short time, Lucky had become the most powerful mobster in America. In 1933, the government repealed prohibition, and Lucky's biggest money-making scheme dried up. But it didn't matter. By that time, the American mafia had diversified into hundreds of different markets besides alcohol. Lucky's influence had even seeped into media and politics. Newspaper editors and community leaders were happy to turn a blind eye in exchange for a stack of cash. Lucky ran the place, top to bottom. In other words, it was just like Sicily. However, not every lawman was in Lucky's pocket, which made his days numbered. After a surprise grand jury order, a federal prosecutor named Thomas Dewey made it his mission to bring down New York's organized crime rackets. Dewey dreamt of being governor one day, and in his mind, catching villains was the surest way to get there. He initially went after Dutch Schultz, but as we heard earlier, Schultz's friends got to him first. After that, Dewey turned his attention to Lucky Luciano. In 1936, he finally nabbed Lucky for running a ring of sex workers. A federal judge sentenced the boss of all bosses to no less than 30 years in prison. But the mafia was much larger than one man. Even jailing the head of the commission couldn't slow down business. Lucky continued to direct his empire from behind bars, and his soldiers kept the cash flowing in his absence. And when World War II broke out in 1939, America quickly lost its taste for prosecuting organized crime. Suddenly, Nazis were seen as much scarier than criminals. The war was an even bigger boon for the Mafia than Prohibition. There were thousands of new government contracts to produce weapons, uniforms, steel, and food. Each provided an opportunity for graft, and the mob tried to steal every penny it could. The war profiteering created an influx of cash that allowed the organization to expand like a tumor on America's lymph nodes. Lucky's old pal Bugsy Siegel used mafia money to build one of Las Vegas's first casinos, the Flamingo, in 1946. Everything they touched turned to money. Gambling, drugs, and good old-fashioned extortion turned the American mafia, now known as La Cosa Nostra, which is Italian for our thing, into one of the most formidable businesses in the world and all of it done in secret. Lucky was released from prison in early 1946 after serving only less than one-third of his 30-year sentence and deported to Italy. Yet being out of the U.S. didn't mean being out of the game. There, he helped create a massive heroin trafficking route before his death in 1962. Even without Lucky, the American Mafia steamrolled ahead. Their power seemed limitless. As Meyer Lansky once quipped to his wife, quote, We're bigger than U.S. Steel. But the winds had started to turn against them. After decades of inaction, the FBI awoke from its slumber and fixed its gaze on La Cosa Nostra. 
the good times were coming to an end. Coming up, the FBI finally strikes back. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In half a century, the American mafia rose from a band of smugglers to a massive multinational syndicate. One study from the 1960s estimated the annual income from the mafia's top 20 families was valued at what would be somewhere around $60 billion in today's dollars. The mafia touched nearly every industry, from labor unions to casinos to Hollywood film sets. And yet, for decades, there was no concerted effort to stop them. A few local and federal prosecutors managed to lock up the occasional godfather, like Lucky Luciano, but for the most part, the mob was untouchable. There were a few reasons for this. For one, the organization of the mafia itself. Cops were trained to look for people who broke the law, which means they only nabbed low- and mid-level wise guys, not the bosses calling the shots. Furthermore, the unbreakable code of Omerta meant that the men they did catch never flipped on their own. In addition, La Cosa Nostra's infiltration of the American justice system worked like a shield, just as it had in Sicily. When an arrest was made, the organization could bribe a judge or threaten a juror into acquitting the guilty party. Stopping the mafia required a new way of thinking. Police work was no longer beat work. It was a long, dedicated game of cat and mouse. The U.S. needed incorruptible investigators to eavesdrop on mafiosi, follow trails of money across state lines, and protect witnesses from mafia hitmen. In other words, it needed the FBI. For almost 50 years, the FBI was run by an iron-fisted director named J. Edgar Hoover. During the 1930s, he led a campaign against notorious gangsters like John Dillinger. This cemented his image as the government's great crime fighter. Hoover, though, was the ultimate chameleon. In reality, he didn't actually want the FBI digging into organized crime at all. Such investigations were long, difficult, and expensive. Most importantly, he worried his agents might be persuaded into taking bribes, and that would create a scandal. His number one rule was, quote, don't embarrass the Bureau. This willful ignorance explains why, for a long time, Hoover refused to believe the Mafia even existed. He was aware that certain dangerous gangs controlled large swaths of territory, but apparently it didn't occur to him that there could be a single organization in charge of everything. For decades, Hoover deflected on the subject. By keeping his agents away from the mafia, it grew unchecked across the country. But the truth wouldn't stay hidden forever. In 1950, 
a young senator from Tennessee named Estes Kefauver decided to make his mark by going after illegal gambling and racketeering activities. That mission escalated into an all-out war on organized crime. The more he looked, the more Kefauver realized that gambling was only one small part of a much larger operation. For the next year, he traveled the country, interrogating more than 600 witnesses on live television, including the heads of major mafia outfits. Kefauver wasn't exactly getting tell-all confessions. Lansky invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, meaning he kept his mouth shut in the face of increasing pressure from the authorities, and one New York capo simply cursed him out before storming out of the room. However, Kefauver's media circus introduced the American people and Director Hoover to the reality of a massive organized crime syndicate called the Mafia. Which the director still willfully ignored. Even when FBI reports confirmed the truth of the report, Hoover refused to let the Bureau taint itself by committing to a major investigation of La Cosa Nostra. Even after much political pressure, he assigned a grand total of four agents to track all mafia activity in New York. Turns out, what Hoover couldn't ignore was a change in administration. The 1960s brought the Kennedys and Attorney General Robert Kennedy's order for Hoover to break the mafia's back. Finally, the feds were sent into action. Local police veterans showed them how to surveil mafiosi at family gatherings and photograph them from afar. They also wiretap mobsters like Meyer Lansky. Several years of work, though, yielded paltry results. Eventually, Hoover turned his focus to infiltrating civil rights groups and left-wing student organizations and gave the mob another pass. It wasn't until after the director's death in 1972 that things started to change. His successor, Judge William Webster, reformed the Bureau and promoted a dedicated assistant director, Neil Welch, to head the New York office. Unlike when Hoover was in charge, Welch could now go full force with his new anti-mafia campaign. Welch directed his agents to forget about low-level arrests and focus only on the big dogs, the untouchables. And their arsenal included a brand new legal weapon, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. RICO was a federal law that resulted from the revelations of the Kefauver hearings. It addressed the problem of bosses who wouldn't dare be caught near the scene of a crime. Prosecutors could now charge people for being part of a larger criminal network, even if they didn't personally break the law. If a business enterprise engaged in any number of specific crimes, including bribery, murder, or extortion, then a jury could convict someone for simply being an employee of that business. Furthermore, because the organization was essentially on trial, rather than individual members, the government could potentially prosecute groups of people at once. Anyone they could tie to the syndicate was fair game. With that in mind, Welch's agents got to work. When they had enough evidence, the agents requested Title III warrants from a federal judge to install wiretaps. And one fateful bug yielded a gold mine of information. 
planted in the car of a mafia captain, it led the FBI to discover the commission. This roughly coincided with the desire for the FBI to have a mole inside the organization. A shrewd play, but far easier said than done. Mafia traders usually wound up in the trunk of a car on a one-way trip. It took a special kind of bravery or stupidity to volunteer for such a job. Fortunately, the FBI had just the person, Special Agent Joseph Bistone. Pistone was a family man with a taste for adventure. He'd left his job as a middle school social studies teacher to join the Office of Naval Intelligence. That led him to the FBI, which soon had him chasing bank robbers and fugitive criminals. He was good at it, but nothing prepared him for what came next. His assignment began in 1976 as a simple plan to bust criminals by posing as a jewel thief named Donald Brasco. It soon ballooned into one of the FBI's biggest operations in history. For six years, Pistone spent his waking hours pretending to be somebody else. During that time, his real identity was known only to his family and a handful of FBI agents. Pistone's new burglar friends got him involved with the notorious Bonanno Syndicate, one of New York's oldest crime families. By starting with petty thefts and working his way up, Pistone made his way into the family's inner circle. He reported back to his handler at every step. When they'd collected enough dirt, federal agents descended on the Bonanno family, serving RICO indictments by the dozen. The commission called an emergency meeting and put a $500,000 bounty on Pistone's life. Though they murdered several of his wise guy buddies, Pistone survived to testify in every single trial. After several years of court battles, the government secured more than 100 federal convictions, the largest in history. In Pistone's words, the government, quote, blasted the heart out of La Cosa Nostra. It was a significant win for the American justice system, but the fight was far from over. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York at the time, a young and idealistic Rudolph Giuliani, wanted to deliver the killing blow. He went after politicians who accepted bribes from the mafia and put a target on the commission itself. If Pistone blasted the heart out of La Cosa Nostra, Giuliani was going for its head. Giuliani made the case that the commission was subject to the same rules that Rico outlined for individual families. They were considered a single criminal organization. From its earlier wiretaps, the FBI had tapes proving the commission's existence. They even had photographs of a meeting in progress. So in February 1985, federal agents rounded up leading figures from the five New York families and put them on trial. The massive case called on 85 witnesses and allowed prosecutors to present hundreds of pieces of audio, video, and photographic evidence. After six days of deliberation, the jury found the eight defendants guilty of 151 criminal charges. In the eyes of America, it was La Cosa Nostra's death knell. 
Of course, if we've learned anything about the mob, it's that it shouldn't be underestimated. Even with their bosses in jail, the families carried on with their business. In the face of increasing pressure from law enforcement, organized crime did what it does best, adapt. Drugs, loan sharking, and bookmaking were still mainstays, but clever criminals found ways of generating billions in cash through video poker, then online gambling. Many of the biggest mobsters are now thought to conduct business with Bitcoin. Meanwhile, the FBI has kept up its game of whack-a-mole, occasionally scoring big wins. For example, federal prosecutors convicted mob boss John Gotti in 1992, his son in 1999, and even his grandson in 2018. It's a family business, after all. Old mafia dynasties fall and new ones rise. When one boss is executed, another takes his place. Over the years, the power of the Mafia has declined, but it hasn't gone away. Not in Sicily, and not in America. Which means that right now, in a sweaty dive bar or a three-story mansion, a conspiracy is being hatched. A boss is teaching his outfit how to forge checks, or a gunman is lying in wait, ready to murder a witness. From a feudal society of lemon growers and merchants grew a malevolent creature, which has been content to feed on the society that sustains it like a parasite. But now we've cracked open the veil of Omerta, and with that comes a fighting chance for change. Next time, we'll explore three little-known conspiracy theories from La Cosa Nostra's long history in America. Like conspiracy theory number one, the Mafia helped the Allied powers win World War II. And conspiracy theory number two, the mob collaborated with the CIA in a failed plot to assassinate Fidel Castro. And conspiracy theory number three, the Mafia helped get one of their associates, Richard Nixon, elected president of the United States. Like we said, one should never underestimate the mob's power or ambition. Because having an ally in the White House, well, that's just good business. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with exciting stories from inside the syndicate. For more information about the Mafia, we found Cosa Nostra, A History of the Sicilian Mafia by John Dickey, and Five Families, The Rise, Decline, and Resurgence of America's Most Powerful Mafia Empires by Selwyn Robb to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Ben Caro and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. 
Conspiracy Theory stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Scotland Yard Confidential is the new Spotify original from Parcast. Enter the minds of some of the greatest detectives in history as they crack seemingly impossible cases. Join us for episodes airing weekly starting May 19th. Follow and listen for free on Spotify.